The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, before we get started, I thought I would uh, read a couple of excerpts from an editorial this, that I ran across this last week, simply because it fits in with the subject matter in Daniel, that as we're going through Daniel, we are seeing that here you have a mature believer who is in the extreme minority in a pagan culture, pagan society dominated by... Uh, some of the most extreme forms of idolatry and uh, fertility religion and astrology and astronomy and occult teaching and has gone through a his Daniel's gone through his own three year intensive training course uh, where he has been where the Babylonians have attempted to you know force him to think as the government wants him to think. He's gone to all the state-sponsored schools and uh, tax-supported schools. So I ran across this editorial. I thought I'd read it first before we get to the point of confession, just because after I read it, many of you, while I read it, many of you are going to get out of fellowship. This is from Ann Coulter's column on June 14, 2001. And she begins this week. The Supreme Court upheld the right of religious groups to participate in the beautiful mosaic of after-school activities. Now, apparently, there was a case before the court on this, and it so aggravated a school in this state that when they discovered that they were going to have to uh, allow for a five-day club by Child Evangelism Fellowship to be held at their elementary school, they decided, and this, this shows you the, what the real issues are here. There is a hatred of Christianity. It is not just a, that they want something neutral. They hate Christianity. And they hate it so much that what this school system decided to do was to uh, do away with all after-school extracurriculum activities so they wouldn't have to let anyone come on campus and teach, oh, horror of horrors, the Bible. So uh, that just shows you that we are engaged in a battle. Anyway, she, uh, she goes on to write regarding this decision. Justice Clarence Thomas remarked on the oddity of having to reverse the same court twice. What had happened was the same lower court had made a decision against having after-school uh, Bible groups on campus uh, back in the 70s, and the Supreme Court reversed them then. And the, sa- the same court, I'm not sure which one it was, made the same decision again and had to be reversed again on the same issue. So apparently there's a court out there that doesn't want any kind of uh, uh, Christianity anywhere close to uh, schools at all. So she goes on to say, at least the 6-3 to three decision that is on the Supreme Court gives us an accurate count of the atheists on the court, probably as accurate as as my dream of giving them all a polygraph test someday. Quote, do you believe in a higher being? No. No, seriously now. 
Justice David Souter dissented in a hair-splitting exegesis about the precise time classes let out, 2.56 p.m., versus the time the organizers would enter school property. So there, there's this real uh, antagonism there. We just don't really want to taint our school children or infect them with anything uh, religious. The New York Times obligatory hysterical denunciation of the decision revealingly complained, quote, children that young are unlikely to discern that the religious message of authority figures who come to the school each day to teach does not carry the school's endorsement. Coulter writes, it's simply taken for granted that it's desirable for children to revere authority figures at government schools. Normally, those authority figures are teaching the, younger, the youngsters to put condoms on zucchini or training them in the catechism of recycling. Sending a mixed message about government authority figures might interfere with the state's ability to turn small children into good Germans inculcated in the liberal religion. It's well past time for liberalism to be declared a religion and banned from public schools. Allowing Christians to be one of many after-school groups induces hysteria, not just because liberals hate religion. It's because the public school is their temple. Children must be taught to love Big Brother, welcoming him to take over our schools, our bank accounts, our property, even our toilet bowls. She goes on to write several other telling comments, but at the end... She says, it's hard to imagine now, but before the official government religion was liberalism, devoted to class warfare, ethnic hatred, and intolerance, Americans were kind to one another. They managed to get along even without ACLU lawsuits. Thus, when back in the early days of the Republic, when there were enough practitioners of other faiths in various states that had established religions, uh, for example, Connecticut dis- didn't disestablish uh, congregationalism until the 1820s. They still had a state law in the books establishing the congregational denomination as the state, as the re- authorized religion of the state of Connecticut. Uh, she goes on to say that uh, when there, there came to be enough of other views, the majority just disestablished themselves, all quite, all quite civil. Well, we live in an age when the majority wants to promote the religion of liberalism. And don't be confused or don't be distracted. Every belief, even atheism, liberalism, secularism, are all religions because they all entail certain views of the ultimate reality in the universe and they all entail value judgments and value judgments have something to do with absolutes and what's right or wrong. And that always entails a religious system. You can't have neutrality. There's no such thing as creating a public school system that's neutral. Whose values are going to be dominant? Whose values are going to be taught in the classroom? And that's the issue. Well, before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer. So you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary in order to... Uh, confess any sin, and then we know that at the instant of confession we're forgiven because all sins were paid for by Christ on the cross, and so the issue really isn't sin. The issue is our faith alone in Christ alone for salvation, and then just 
recalling that Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins. Instantly we're forgiven, restored to fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to study His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that we live in a country that still gives us the freedom to assemble, the freedom to teach your word accurately and clearly, the freedom to, to, to think and the freedom to speak our mind and the freedom to disagree. And Father, we pray that we might not take these freedoms for granted, but that we might recognize that, that there is a battle going on all around us and part of our role in this battle is to, to exercise our freedom to, be in Bible class to learn your word, to study your word, and to apply doctrine in every situation in our lives. Father, as we continue our study of this book of Daniel where we see this fantastic example of one individual taking a stand for the truth in his personal life and throughout his career and how you blessed him in that, may we be challenged by that and be willing to follow that example. Father, we pray as we study the things that we are looking at this evening to understand your plan and purposes for history and how to interpret your prophecies that we would um, be able to understand these things and be clear on what the issues are. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our study of Daniel. And last time we came down to Daniel 2.34 and following, where Daniel begins to tell Nebuchadnezzar the content of his dream. Nebuchadnezzar had been uh, disturbed by a dream he had had, not just one dream, but a dream he had over and over and over again. Nebuchadnezzar, just to remind you, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest monarchs, one of the greatest uh, emperors, one of the greatest military men of all of history. He was prior to Alexander the Great. He was a young man probably in his late 20s or early 30s at the time that he conquered both the Assyrian Empire and then the Egyptian Empire. And he finalized that defeat at the Battle of Carchemish, which was up in Syria. That was a vital strategic area because it gave him control of all of the major trade routes in the ancient Near East. Once he defeated the Egyptian army there at Carchemish and they retreated rapidly to... Egypt had left Nebuchadnezzar as a young man in control of the largest piece of real estate that any one individual had controlled in almost all of human history. I think the Babylonian Empire was larger than any other empire in history. Now, at that stage, when he has consolidated his power some two years, two or three years after ascending to the throne, He began to be disturbed in his sleep by some dreams. Now, he wasn't just worried, and then his worry and anxiety generated some sort of dream from his subconscious. This was a dream that was given to him by God. It was part of divine revelation. And we see that in the midst of that dream, he's confronted with the fact that even though he possesses all the details of life in a degree and in such an abundance that that none of us in this room probably could even imagine the kind of power, the kind of control, the kind of prosperity that he enjoyed. And yet, when he is at the very top of all of the um, aspirations of human ambition, 
he has this dream, and he focuses on this dream night after night after night. And it disturbs him, and he doesn't know what it means, but he senses that this dream has something to do with his own position, his own power. It has something to do with the future. And so he is, he is disturbed. He goes to all of his counselors, all the wise men, all of the academics, all of the soothsayers and fortune tellers and astrologers in the empire, the greatest men that he knew, men who had taught him when he was a young man, taught him all of the religious systems of Babylon, taught him their systems of astrology and astronomy and all of their systems of prophecy. And he went to them and he said, okay, if you guys really believe this, that this is really true, then I'm going to put you to the test because I'm so disturbed by what I've seen in my dream that I want to find out if you're just going to be blowing smoke at me or if you really have the answers to life's problems. And so I not only want you to give me the interpretation of the dream, I want you to tell me what I dreamed. So he puts them to the ultimate test. Now, it's a test they realize they can't pass, and so they try to crawfish, and they try to get out from under the situation. They try to tell him that, that uh, no one can do that. It's impossible. They could only do that if God told them how to do that. And, of course, they're just setting the stage for Daniel to come in. And so we saw that Daniel heard about this because the penalty was that if they couldn't do this, then they were going to be executed. They would be torn limb from limb, not a, not a pleasant death. And their houses would be turned into public urinals to express exactly what Nebuchadnezzar thought of their whole system and their whole uh, approach to life. Well, when the executioners came to Daniel to get Daniel, they, uh, he said, wait a minute, God's going to give me the solution. Let, take me to the king and let me tell him. So he went to the king and informed the king that God would give him the solution, tell him what the dream was and its interpretation. Daniel went home, got with his three friends, and they prayed. Late into the night, God revealed to Daniel the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. And then we, we came to the point of verse 34 where he begins to tell uh, Nebuchadnezzar just exactly what it was that he dreamed. Now, at that point, we stopped. We took a pause, a parenthesis, because this is one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible for understanding God's prophetic plan for human history and for understanding God's outline of human history. It is one of the most remarkable prophecies of all time. And if you, we lived in a time which was really not that long ago, maybe uh, four or five decades ago, when people in this country were truly educated, every one of you would know exactly what this dream related to. There was a time when, in, in the history of Western civilization when it was just common knowledge to understand the four kingdoms of Daniel's dream. And the fifth kingdom was the final kingdom in human history, such that back during the time of the, of the Puritans in England, during the time of the Puritan Revolution, when they when they killed or executed Charles I, when Cromwell established the protectorate in England, there was also a group at that time called the Fifth Monarchists. Now, they had taken this to an extreme, and they were uh, almost anarchists, but they got the term Fifth Monarchy from the Fifth Kingdom in this outline of Daniel chapter 2, and that became a, a general term for anarchists over the centuries was Fifth Monarchists, and that has its roots in Daniel chapter 2. Hegel and Marx subverted the uh, historical interpretation of Daniel chapter 2 and perverted it and converted it into their 
into Hegel's philosophical system and Marx's understanding of history for communism. So you see, this chapter has quite a history and quite a significance, but most people today are ignorant of it because we no longer live in a truly educated society. So Daniel 2 is crucial. It's crucial to understanding the rest of Daniel. It's crucial to understanding what happens in Revelation. It's crucial to understanding Jesus' prophecies in Matthew 24 and 25 at the Olivet Discourse. So we have to take some time before we get into the nuts and bolts of the interpretation to understand some framework of how Christians have tended to interpret this passage. And this is a basic overview of interpretation. There are all kinds of little intricate uh, variations on each one of these that I could get into, but that's not my purpose. My purpose is simply to give a a broad enough overview for you to understand what the basic differences are between these three uh, systems because they are not only systems of interpreting prophecy, but since prophecy deals with the end of history and prophecy, prophecy deals with where history is going and what God is doing in history, prophecy then, how you understand prophecy, becomes fundamental to your philosophy of history. And how you understand history then becomes fundamental in how you think, what you think about law, government, politics, the roles of nations, social action, all of these issues become affected by how you view and understand prophecy. So it's not just a matter of what's going to happen in the future and having your curiosity titillated by all kinds of speculation as to what's going to happen and what does 666 mean and who's the Antichrist going to be and golly, could it be the Ayatollah Khomeini? Of course, it's not now. He's dead. Or could it be Henry Kissinger? Or could it be Bill Clinton? Or who could it be? But um, we're not going to get into that, but we're going to look at the foundational issues. Now, last time we saw, I, I wanted to focus this on three key questions. Three quick key questions. And you need to get these fixed in your mind. The first is, what is the relationship of Christ's return to the end of history? Second, will the kingdom of Christ ever dominate human cultures? And third, what ends his evil? What ends evil in history? Now I'll go over those again because I ran through them rather quick. First of all, what is the relationship of Christ's return to the end of history? Jesus Christ is going to come back. Does that end history? Is that going to just bring in another phase of history? How does it relate to human history? Second question: Will the kingdom of Christ now? I'm making a specific point of stating it that way. The kingdom of Christ, the messianic kingdom. Because the Bible talks about the kingdom of God in different ways. It has the phrases such as the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and those are distinct terms from the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of the Messiah. And what happens is if people think these terms are synonymous, you can end up really getting confused and misinterpreting some passages of Scripture. So will the kingdom of Christ ever dominate human cultures? And then the third question, what is it that brings evil to an end in history? What ends evil in human history? 
So here are the three questions. Now, the three schools of thought are premillennialism, that Christ returns before the millennium, amillennialism, that there's no literal millennium, and postmillennialism, that gradually we get the church brings in the millennium and Christ comes back postmillennially or after the millennium. So let's just survey the answers. First of all, Christ's return ends history. Second, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ will at some time dominate this world's culture. And third, evil remains in force until Christ returns. Amillennialists and postmillennialists all say that Christ's return ends history. Human history ends with Christ's return. Premillennialists say, no, Christ's return ends the tribulation, but the millennial kingdom is part of human history. It is the last stage in human history, and human history does not end until, until God or Christ brings in the kingdom and brings to fulfillment the original creation mandate for man to subdue the earth under the authority of God. Premillennialism says that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ will at some time dominate this world's culture. That the kingdom of Christ will at some time dominate this world's culture. And that will only be in the messianic kingdom. Postmillennialists say the same thing, but the church is going to bring in the kingdom and then Christ will return. Premillennialists say evil remains in force until Christ returns. And I want to point out something, that in premillennialism you have a true substantive understanding of the depravity of the human heart. I don't think in all my readings of postmillennialists that they really grasp the fact that even saved people still have a sin nature that's just as capable of, of extreme heinous sin as it was prior to salvation. Salvation does not reduce, change, or remove the sin nature. It does break its power, but it doesn't remove it. After salvation, you were just as capable of committing all of the horrible sins that you were before you were saved. Now, if you don't believe that, show up Sunday morning, first hour, as we go through our study of Samson. There ever was anybody as self-centered, self-absorbed, sex-oriented, perverted as Samson was, and yet he was a believer according to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, see, that just shows a lot of people that you don't, you don't have to be pure to be a believer. Now, he suffered a lot because of his disobedience, and that goes along with it, but he was still a believer. Amillennialists also believe that evil remains in force. They are pessimistic it's only the post-millennialists who, are, who has an optimistic view that somehow things are going to get better and better. Okay, that's our overview. Last time we looked at uh, the history of premillennialism and saw that it extends back to as early as the early days of the church age. The early church fathers were premillennial. They believed that that Christ was going to return and then set up His kingdom. That, that, that was what was taught in the Old Testament, that Israel had a messianic expectation that the Messiah would come and set up a kingdom and rule on the earth, on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And so this chart demonstrates it. We're currently in the church age, somewhere hopefully right near the end. 
church age is followed by a seven-year tribulation that is ended by the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. And that at that time, He inaugurates the millennium. Now, just a note, one thing that has happened to bring confusion to this whole issue is that due to the pressure of uh, the debates between premillennialists and amels and postmills, some premillennialists are trying to find a middle ground. And I think they have compromised and they've started interpreting certain passages as uh, in the same way that amels have. So what they're going with now, and here's the catchphrase, that we're in an already we're already in the kingdom, but it's not yet fully here. It's called the already not yet view of the kingdom. And so Jesus Jesus inaugurated the kingdom at the first advent, but he doesn't establish it fully until he comes to the second coming. And um, the problem with that is that, that they start loading into uh, the church age all kinds of things related to the... Um, uh, Millennium into the church age, and it gets into a lot of different problems. But I don't want to get distracted into that. That's just another one of those uh, various little views that are cropping up today. This is premillennialism. Now, with regard to the first question, is that Christ's return and its relationship to history? We've seen that on the basis of Revelation 20 last time that that uh, Christ's return does not end history. The premillennialist argues on the basis of Revelation 20 that Jesus Christ comes to the earth and inaugurates. It's not until His return that He inaugurates a 1,000 year reign on the earth. And therefore, other passages such as 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the return of Christ, Matthew 24 and 25, must be interpreted in light of Revelation chapter 20. So when the, we come to passages like, like Matthew 24 and 25, which describe the return of Jesus Christ and a judgment separating the goats from the sheep, that that is not talking about the same judgment that occurs at the end of Revelation 20. That would be a judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation separating the believers who survived the tribulation from the unbelievers, and then the believers who survived the tribulation continue into the tribulation period as um, in their mortal bodies to reestablish, to repopulate uh, the earth. So the judgment of Matthew 24 and 25 is then seen as an elimination of unbelievers, not the final judgment. The second question we ask, the kingdom of God will someday literally dominate, or the kingdom of Christ will someday literally dominate this mortal world's culture. The basis for this position goes back to Genesis 1, 26, when God originally mandated to Adam before the fall that he was to subdue the earth. Now, because of the fall and all of human history since the fall, man has never been able to subdue the earth under the authority of God. And so the premillennialist says it's not until Christ returns as the second Adam, establishing a kingdom on the earth, that we have a time when that original mandate, that original creation purpose of man in Genesis 1, 
26 to 28, is going to be fulfilled. And so it has to be fulfilled in time in human history. Dr. Charles Ryrie states about this, concerning the goal of history, the premillennial dispensationalist finds it in the establishment of the millennial kingdom on earth, which the covenant theologian, that's the Amil and the Postmill, which the covenant theologian regards as the eternal state. This does not mean that the dispensationalists minimize the glory of the eternal state, but they insist that the display of the glory of God who is sovereign in human history must be seen in the present heavens and earth as well as in the new heavens and earth. And what he is saying is that that must be demonstrated in time, in a, in a creation, in a universe that is still under the curse of sin. Another writer on millennialism, Alva, Alvin McLean, writes that premillenarianism says that life here and now, in spite of the tragedy of sin, is nevertheless something worthwhile, and therefore all efforts to make it better are also worthwhile. All the true values of human life will be preserved and carried into the coming kingdom. Now, I want you to think about that. That is an insightful statement. Some of you can really speculate on that a lot. See, what that is saying is that the technology that we have at the end of the tribulation is going to be where man starts technologically at the beginning of the millennium. When the millennial starts, we're not going to forget about all of the wonderful, beautiful music of Bach, of Beethoven, of Handel, of Wagner. All of that's going to continue. All of the art that survives the tribulation that's not destroyed is going to survive into the millennial kingdom. Everything that is produced of value in human history up to the second coming of Christ is going to still be here and go into the millennial kingdom. Because ultimately what is happening in the millennial kingdom is the bringing to pass the mandate of Genesis 1, 26-28 that man is going to, to uh, dominate and subdue the earth. So every quality, bona fide piece of, of human culture uh, is going to survive. Art, music, technology, science, all of that is going to be carried into the millennium and that's going to be the starting point and it will develop from there. Now one of the problems is that that um, the post-mill and the ah-mill is always accusing the pre-mill of being pessimistic. Oh, you just think everything's going to fall apart and then and you have to have Christ come back to rescue you. Well, that's not what we're saying. Oh, this, this view is not pessimistic. It is realistic in the view that all men are sinners and there is going to be a decline, but it's optimistic in terms of what is going to be accomplished in the kingdom of Christ on the basis of man's uh, on the basis of fulfilling the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. I want to look at a couple of passages to see how, uh, how they impact our understanding of this future kingdom. Because one of the things that we see here is that the Old Testament talks about a golden age, a almost an almost utopic state in the future, but their description of that utopic state still includes the problem of sin and death. See, the amillennialists and the postmillennialists 
are going to look at what happens after Christ come as something that is purely utopic. They're going to spiritualize these prophecies and make them apply to a, a time when there is no sin, especially the amillennialists. So let's look at these, and we're going to see these passages. I'm going to refer to them again and again as we get into our, our, our examination of amill and postmill thinking. For example, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. There we read, Now it will come about that in the last days... Now, that's not the last days of the church. That's the last days of human history. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. This is talking about that future time when Israel, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, are reunited with the Messiah in the land. In, these, in those last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Notice, all the nations are going to be going to the house of the Lord to worship. There's going to be a universality of salvation. Verse 3, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways. Notice there's no anti-Semitism. The entire world, everybody's looking to Israel for spiritual instruction. Let us go to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations. There's the key phrase. He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now, at the opening introduction this evening, as, we talk, as I talked about the fact that there is no such thing as neutrality, even in the classroom, you'll never find it. Somebody's value has to dominate. This passage reminds us that there is no such thing as neutrality. Think about it. Isaiah 2.4, the second half, that verse hangs over a very significant site on the face of the planet. The verse, the quotation, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. It hangs over the entrance to the U.N. building in New York. And that is a conscientious claim by the United Nations that they are capable of bringing in this kind of utopic. They are usurping for themselves the claims of the Messiah. And they are claiming that they can bring it in. So there is a religious foundation, not a biblical foundation, not a Christian foundation, but a biblical, uh, I mean, but a, but a religious foundation, the usurpation of this verse to the secular kingdom of man down at the UN. Now, this verse, verse 4, states that Christ, the Messiah, will judge between the nations that indicates that there will still be the necessity of adjudicating between national disagreements. There's still going to be conflicts between nations, and the Messiah is going to have to uh, judge between them. So that indicates that even though it is a utopic state, it is not without sin, without disagreement, and without problems. So this means that uh, warfare won't be practiced anymore, because according to uh, Major General Carl von Clausewitz, 
in his work on war. War is not merely an act of policy, but a true political instrument, a continuation of political activity. That's a famous definition of war offered by Clausewitz. It's a continuation of political activity. But that continuation of political activity won't be involved in the millennium because there will be no war. War necessarily is the result of sin and sinful nations and powers operating on their own self-centered agenda. Alfred Thayer Mahan, in his famous work on naval strategy, writes, Where evil is mighty and defiant, the obligation to use force, that is war, arises. So they recognize that because men are sinful, war is an inherent reality and we must prepare for it. But because there will be a righteous and perfect government in the millennial kingdom, these disagreements will not flare to the point of war and there will be no purpose for armament. But that doesn't come about until the millennial kingdom. And that's why Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of war until I come again. Man cannot stop that. Another passage that indicates that there will be uh, sin, that there will be depravity even in this utopic state of the Messianic kingdom is in Isaiah 65, verses 20 to 25. There we read, No longer will there be in it, that is in the kingdom, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. See, there won't be health problems. There will be a, a reversal of man's limitations since the, fall, since the flood, and they will live out their days even a thousand years. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred, and the one who does not reach the age of a hundred shall be thought accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Isaiah 65:22. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of trees, so shall be the days of my people, and my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. Notice there's still going to be toil. Remember, that was introduced as a result of the curse. So there is still a partial curse on the planet. Sin is still involved even in the Messianic kingdom. It's not the pure utopic view of the amillennialists. Verse 23, They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, but they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Verse 24, It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. Notice, that's a very famous promise that people quote all the time for prayer. Please notice the context. It's millennial. Verse 25, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. So passages like these do not refer to an eternity where there is no sin. But they refer to a utopic environment on the earth, but there will still be sin present and a a degree of the curse is still in operation. The third question involves the relationship of evil to time. And the premillennial position is that evil remains in force until it is completely removed by the return of Christ. There's a partial rollback of the curse at the second coming and then it's completely removed at the end of the millennial kingdom. But again, there is an emphasis that evil remains in force fully until Christ returns. 
fully. The post mill says it's not full. It's gradually rolled back. Look at these verses. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. Until there is a physical transformation, i.e. the new heavens and the new earth, there's still going to be groaning because of sin in this present age of history. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 30. And those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did possess. And that's talking about the fact that even at that time, or let's go on to verse 31. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. In other words, they'll still be weeping and sorrow and sadness until this world is completely gone. It's not going to gradually fade out. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 states, in whose case the God of this age, literally it's a temporal time word, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And compare that with Revelation 23 where we're told that it is at the end of the tribulation and at the beginning of the millennium that Satan is thrown into the abyss when it, and Christ will shut it and seal it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. point is simple, that during the, this age, according to premillennial view, there is going to be a continuous intensity of sin. It's not gradually reduced or rolled back until Jesus comes. But post-millennialism specifically says that it's going to gradually get rolled back. Now let's look at a couple of interesting quotes. One is from Lorraine Bettner in his book, The Millennium. He's a post-millennialist. And he writes, On post-millennial grounds, it hardly seems that even in the most advanced nations on earth have we seen anything that is worthy of being called more than the early dawn of the millennium. So he admits, he wrote this in about in the 50s, that, that there's nothing close to the millennium on the horizon. And then another amillennialist who, who makes, makes the, this comment, uh, which really is one we would wholeheartedly agree with, he says, the Christian congregation is in miniature exactly what the post-millennialist expects the millennium to be on a larger scale. Now think about this. The Christian congregation, that is, pick a church, any church, that's what the post-millennialist expects the millennium to be like on a larger scale. I don't know about you, but I've been in some, some churches where there's some real catfights. And that's a, this guy's point. He said, but the sin and consequent problems among Christians proves that such a society would be far from golden. See, Christians still have sin natures and can still sin in extreme ways. I'm telling you, if you've never run afoul of some, some Christian who's operating full bore on his sin nature and been the brunt of all of his evil, then you just haven't lived yet. You know, you think unbelievers are bad. Just wait till you get some carnal believer coming after you. Okay, that's, a, that's the premillennial position. Let's compare it with the amill position. Amillennialism says that the church age is the same as the millennium. It's spiritualized. The term millennium and the idea of the thousand-year reign of Christ, that's, 
He reigns spiritually today from the throne of David. It's a spiritual throne in heaven. And the second coming of Christ ends the current age, and that's when the present heavens and earth are destroyed, and the new heavens and new earth will be created for the eternal state. That's amillennialism, no literal millennium. As with premillennialism, amillennialism has its roots in the age before Christ. The interpretation that is applied for amillennialism goes back into ancient Greek culture. The origin of this sort of spiritualizing goes back to a Jew in Alexandria, which was located in North Africa and Egypt, a Jew by the name of Philo. Philo of Alexandria, along with the other rabbis, many other rabbis in North Africa, tried to combine the Old Testament with Platonism. Now remember, Plato taught that everything physical or material was inherently evil and everything spiritual or immaterial was inherently good. And so where that will go is that that which is literal, the letter, is evil, and you have to find the spiritual behind it. So what they were doing is they were merging biblical concepts with Greek philosophy, and that always gets us in trouble. When we try to merge divine viewpoint with human viewpoint, we're always going to destroy divine viewpoint. What they were trying to do is what was happening at the time is The Jews were coming under a lot of criticism and ridicule from the Greek intellectuals. So rather than stand their ground on the truth of the Scriptures as they had it, they thought, well, let's try to make this more acceptable to these Greeks so we won't be such an affront to them. So they began to compromise and they began to adopt a Greek approach to interpretation. So they adopted a scriptural hermeneutic based on allegory and spiritualizing the text. And this concept of allegory really went back to Plato. Because in Plato's time, the Greeks had developed a view of spiritualizing or allegorizing their interpretation of the Olympian gods. Because if you really read the myths and all the stories about the Olympian gods coming down to earth and, and raping a bunch of women, that that was really perverted. And who wanted to have a bunch of perverted, immoral gods? So these are just allegories. So in order to make the gods of Olympus more acceptable, they spiritualized and allegorized the interpretation of these stories of the Greek gods. So the concept of spiritualizing or allegorizing interpretation went back to Plato. And so the Jews just picked that up and tried to use that to uh, interpret scriptures to make it more acceptable to the Greeks. Well, Philo's concept of spiritualizing the Scripture was later picked up after Christ at the end of the 2nd century, or at the end of the 3rd century B.C., and appeared from about 250 to 300 A.D. by a guy by the name of Origen. Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. And Origen took Philo's allegorical hermeneutics and brought it into Christianity. Philo was before Christ, Christ, Origin is after Christ. And Origen picked this up from the past and brought it in to Christianity. Origen did a lot of good things for the church. He also did some horrible things. And one of the horrible impacts that he had was in spiritualizing the text. For example, this is how he would interpret scriptures. 
his commentary on Matthew, Origen psychologizes the prophetic imagery of the passage. When Christ says that he is going to come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, Origen spiritualized that. It wasn't a physical, literal coming in the clouds with glory, but that Christ, this relates to Christ's coming to the mature believer, his spiritual encounter with Christ every time he read the Scriptures. See, it's spiritualized. It's not something that happens in the future and literal. It's just Christ comes to you every time you are impacted by the Scripture. He taught that there were basically two comings of, that the two comings of Christ were the first was in humility when you trust Christ as Savior, and the second was any time that you are impacted by Jesus in your life. So it could refer to uh, Christ coming to the mature believer in the Scriptures. Sometimes he says it refers to Christ coming, at, coming in the flesh at, uh, in the first century, sometimes at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that Christ comes as a spiritual presence when the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, and He comes now in every single manifestation of redeeming power, any reformation in history, and any time you have spiritual insight. Those are all comings of Christ. So there's not just two comings. There's hundreds, thousands, millions of comings of Christ. But if you're thinking, you ought to go back to a passage I quoted about ten minutes ago when Jesus said, There will be wars and rumors of war until I come again. In that same Matthew 24 passage. Now, when Jesus said, until I come again, if that refers to the coming of the Christ when we read the Scriptures, then war should have ended a long time ago. See, when you spiritualize that, all of a sudden you start losing any real meaning. The meaning of Scripture just becomes very broad and general and starts getting washed out and diluted. Leon Morris writes concerning this allegorical method, that the spiritualizing method was greatly advanced by the work of Tychonius. So from origin, you go to the next guy, Tychonius, who interpreted nothing on the basis of its historical setting or the events of the first century. It didn't matter to them what the original historical setting was. Exegesis, history, culture, context is irrelevant. It's just whatever God makes it mean to you right now. So Tychonius is the bridge from origin to... Uh, Augustine. And Augustine lived at the end of the 4th century A.D. and is the uh, father, really, of amillennial theology. It's first systematized and explained in his book, The City of God, which was the most significant piece of literature to be written in the early church and its impact both on Catholics throughout the Middle Ages and on Protestants in the Protestant Reformation is uh, uh, unsurpassed by anything else. Nothing comes close to the impact of Augustine's book, The City of God, for, from about 400 A.D. up really until about 1800 A.D. And in that, he rejects as uh, simply Jewish influence the idea that there would be a future golden age in the mortal world. So Augustine shifted everything to a spiritualized, allegorized interpretation. And so everything, nothing happens literally. Now, to justify their position, they'll go to passages like Hebrews 12:22. There we read, but, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to myriads of angels. And they would say, well, that's spiritual. That's talking the heavenly Jerusalem. That's just, that's just heaven. No, that, this is a literal interpretation of a future new Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. But see, they spiritualize these things out. And so it really doesn't mean what it says. They apply it to some general spiritualized heaven. Just, it just refers to heaven in general. Another passage that they go to to try to support allegorical or spiritual interpretation is in Revelation 11, verse 8. There is the description of the dead bodies of the, of the uh, prophets who are laid out on the streets of Jerusalem for all the world to view. And the text states, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city, which, and then we have a bad translation, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. And see, they go right to that, and they would say, well, see, this justifies a spiritual or allegorical interpretation. No, it doesn't. Not at all. First of all, it's a bad translation. The word mystically isn't there at all. It is the Greek word pneumatikos, which means spiritually. So what is happening is that the writer is saying that Jerusalem at this time, because of its paganism, because of its rejection of God, at that, at that time in the middle of the tribulation, is like Sodom and Egypt. It is represented by all of the, of the worst in paganism in all of human history. And so it is just using an, an analogy. It is not the spiritualization. Let me make a point about allegory. What allegorical interpretation says is the actual historical events are meaningless. It didn't even have to happen that way, literally, or physically, or historically. All that matters is whatever spiritual truth you generalize from the text. And once you do that, you can really make the Scriptures mean just about anything you want them to mean. So Origen and Augustine and and many others take these passages as an example of spiritualization of prophecies where emblems are used, symbols are used, and then they say, well, it doesn't have a literal physical application. It's just, it's just spiritual. Now, amillennialism is the, not, it's not official, I don't believe, but it is the position usually adopted of Roman Catholicism. It's the official position, I know, of the Missouri Synod, of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and of the Christian Reformed Church and the Orthodox Reformed Church. It's uh, the unofficial creed of many churches of Christ and many Baptist churches. Now, GARB, the Greater Association of Regular Baptists, I think they're pre-mill. Southern Baptists are generally, there's a lot of pre-mills there. There's not a a consensus, I think, among Southern Baptists. Um, Conservative Baptist Association is pre-mill. But the, uh, most of the other groups are uh, millennial in their orientation, if not in their, in their creed. Now, from the Amil point of view, will the kingdom of God ever dominate history? Not at all. Uh, they look to a passage, for, for example, in Matthew 13, 10 and 11, the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now, the way the Amil takes this is that Jesus is supposedly correcting the earthly-oriented view of the disciples towards the kingdom. He is supposedly saying, Okay, guys, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. Uh, the, the kingdom is really spiritual, not physical. I, I'm just, that, that's why we're going to, to parables. 
But see, they make the mistake of identifying the kingdom of heaven here with the kingdom of the Messiah. The kingdom of heaven and the parables that follow in Matthew chapter 13 are describing characteristics even of the present age. The kingdom of heaven is the overall rule of God throughout all of human history and is not the same as the messianic kingdom. It's not the same as the future kingdom of Christ that comes when he returns. So he's not correcting anything. He's simply beginning to give them insight into what's going to happen in the mystery form of the kingdom called the church age after his death, burial, and resurrection. Another verse they go to is Galatians 6, verse 16. There we read, And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. The millennialist says, See, there the church is called the Israel of God. But that's not what this passage is saying at all. In the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with the fact that a bunch of Jewish believers who've gotten into a false teaching that you have to come into the law to get blessing have come in behind him after he left Galatia teaching that if you really want to be blessed, you have to be circumcised and, and become part of Israel, proselytized to Israel. They were called Judaizers. And they were trying to say there was a distinction between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. But Paul negates that, and in this verse he's saying, Peace to all who will walk by what I've taught in this epistle, including Jewish believers. Israel of God doesn't ref- is not describing every believer, but only the Jewish believers that were also present in Galatia. And then there is a passage in Romans 11:17 which states, but if some of the branches were broken off, it's the olive tree analogy. Some of the branches are broken off the olive tree, and you, that is you Gentiles, being a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them, being partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. The root of the olive tree is the Abrahamic covenant. The, uh, wa- the, the, the native branches, the domestic branches, are Israel. But because of their rejection of Christ, some are broken off and grafted on a wild olive branches or Gentiles, but they both are blessed because of the Abrahamic covenant. The church doesn't replace. It's like this. Here's a nice picture. This tree is located down outside, I think it's Congregational Church down in Norwich. And if you notice, well, it doesn't come out real clearly, but if you, if you notice in this area, you have red blossoms on this cherry tree. And then the rest of it is white blossoms. See, what they've done is they've grafted on part of one cherry tree here so that you have red blossoms on part of it and white blossoms on another part. And it partakes of the same root. And that's the principle. that, Like the red cherry blossoms, that's the church. Those are Gentiles who've been grafted in not to the body of Christ, but to a position of blessing in Abraham. They're both Jew and Gentile will participate in blessing from one covenant. Well, we'll come back next time and wrap up amillennialism and then get into the postmillennial view. And then we'll be ready to get into analyzing Nebuchadnezzar's dream and this fantastic interpretation of history with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that you control history, that it is not uh, man's, under man's control but that you control history and you are bringing things to an ultimate conclusion where evil will be judged and where Christ will rule and reign. Father, we know that entry into the kingdom of
Heaven is based upon our relationship to Jesus Christ. It's not on the basis of works. It's not on the basis of church membership. It's on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for every single sin in human history. In eternity past, you knew in your omniscience every sin, no matter how horrible, you knew every single sin we would ever commit. You knew about all the horrible sins that Samson committed. You knew about all the horrible sins that David committed. And you knew about all the horrible sins that have been committed by people in this congregation. And you poured out every one of those sins on Jesus Christ, and they were paid for fully and completely so that the issue is no longer sin, the issue is Jesus Christ. And those who put their faith in Jesus Christ have eternal salvation and will always be saved because it is never based on who and what we are, but on His completed work on the cross. So right now, anybody who is without hope, can have certainty in knowing that they can have eternal life by simply putting their faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that we'd be challenged by the things we've studied tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.